me read the passage for us. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is the word of the Lord. Father, bless us with your spirit. So 2013, there was this crazy stat, and I hope this shocks you and overwhelms you as much as it did myself. Uh, Todd Johnson and a team from Gordon-Conwell's Center for the Study of Global Christianity released this statistic. I I don't know how verifiable this is because it's so overwhelming. One out of five non-Christian North Americans don't even know a Christian. That's roughly 20% of the population of North America. That's 13,447,000 people. That's the equivalent population of, the, of metropolitan Los Angeles. I actually was one of these people. The reason that I think a statistic like this can actually be true is because I was one of these people until 1998. I was raised in rural southern Idaho, very conservative, rural southern Idaho, but I had absolutely no genuine exposure to Christianity until I was 21 years old. So I remember going into, my exposure to Christianity was, I remember going into this old Methodist church for a Boy Scouts event, and what stood out to me as I walked into that church was that the carpets were all blood red, and it really freaked me out because they smelled kind of funny, and I could not figure out why they liked that color of carpets for their church. And I remember looking up at the pulpit, they had this big, huge, it just sticks out in my brain, this monstrosity of a pulpit. And all I could envision was an angry man pounding, telling you, you will never have fun. You will never have fun. I couldn't figure out why they sat in benches. It was super strange to me that they didn't just have regular chairs. And then to top it off, most of my friends that were like the good kids at school, they were all Mormons. They were all, do you guys know who the Mormons are? The LDS, are you familiar with Latter-day Saints? Okay, so huge populations of Mormons in Southern Idaho. So all the kids that didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't chew, didn't run with girls that do, those kids, they were all Mormons. And so I associated Jesus and Christianity with the LDS. And what I thought of Christians was that they didn't want to have any fun. For some reason, they didn't drink beer, which was beyond me. In fact, the Mormon kids didn't drink caffeine, which was even weirder. They didn't drink Coke, um, which just, I was like, why would you, you, that's dumb. Why would you want anything to do with that? They had these weird ideas about sex. Like, they, it was like they were almost scared of it, which kind of freaked me out. Like, why would you, that, it just, I had no concept of Christianity. And my first exposure to real Christianity wasn't until I was 21 years old when I moved in with an old buddy who was a Christian, and we happened to, uh, yeah, we would party together, and then he would tell me about Jesus, and it was one of those odd situations that God was guiding me to Jesus through all of these broken, kind of backslidden Christians and a whole assortment of, of realities. In fact, I was actually led to Jesus by a group of former heroin addicts studying the Celestine Prophecy. I wasn't even led to Jesus by a literal like, group of, of Christians like this. 
That should bug us, you guys. We're sitting here on this college campus. There's 30 or 40 of us in this room. It should bother us. It bothers me. It, it bothers me that we are surrounded, our city right now in our neighborhoods. Right now, you and I, we are surrounded by millions of souls. And really, if you think about it, their only exposure to Jesus is through sound bites from talking heads on whichever media source you choose to listen to. Or they're learning about Jesus from tweets and Facebook posts, which is probably not the best place to evangelize and do apologetics and explain who Jesus is. Or worse yet, they're learning about Jesus through the inflamed political discourse around certain hot button issues in our culture right now, which is never a good way to hear about the true king of the universe. So what's happening is American society has this malformed vision of Jesus because they've actually never met a genuine apprentice of Jesus. And most people are rejecting and reacting to sound bites, tweets, rants, inflamed political discourse, weird religious practices within the church. They are not reacting to the genuine Jesus. They are not rejecting the genuine Jesus that we follow and that we love. And in reality, nobody told me till I was 21 years old, rural southern Idaho, I'm, I'm pounding a pulpit at this point, nobody told me that Jesus loved me. When I found out that Jesus was a man who lived 2,000 years ago and he died on a cross and he said he was doing that to absolve me of my guilt, I had never heard anything like that in my life. Nobody had told me that the reason people gather in churches to worship is because Jesus is literally alive right now. I had no exposure. So I am challenging myself to actually move the thermometer to measurably change this stat in my own life. No matter how small and infinitesimal it is, I want John and Mary, Oliver and Eileen, Griff and Judy... Jacob, Jordan, all of the people at Communal Coffee have J names for some reason. <laughs> Joel, Josh, Jeremy, Miriam, Kat, Virginia, my neighbors. I want the people around me to be exposed to Christianity. I want them to have some chance, some chance to be exposed to Jesus. And this is because we should have the heart of Jesus. He said in Luke chapter 19, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came, to seek and save the lost. How can 20% of the population of North America not even have any exposure, not even know a single Christian if the heart of Jesus is for us to seek and save the lost because that's what he came to do in and through us. So the final command that Jesus gave, of course, before ascending unto the Father, before he went back to the kingdom eternal, was to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The great tragedy of Western concept of discipleship is that it does not start with making a disciple. Discipleship in the church actually begins with the person who has never been exposed to Jesus. Discipleship doesn't start with cups of coffee and a book study 
amongst two Christian friends as you hold each other accountable. That's not the, that is discipleship, but that's not the starting point of discipleship. The starting point of apprenticeship unto Jesus starts with the one who has not yet to yield to the true master. And we invite, we encourage, we exhort, we make disciples as we are discipled by Jesus. And this has been truly, this has been the only mission of the church from the beginning of her existence. We build hospitals for the sake of saving the lost. We adopt orphans for the sake of saving the lost. We do social justice for the sake of saving the lost. And guys, it has never been easy. Maybe in the last 60 years in the West when Christianity had political power and social power and it was conducive to your promotion in society to bear the name Christian, but those days are gone. We live in postmodern, post-Christian North American, I don't even know a Christian culture. So every generation of genuine Jesus followers, this is par for the course for us, has always been opposed by Satan. Every generation of Christians at some point has always been pushed to the margins of society. A society says we will build a tower, a name unto ourselves. And every generation of Christians has to deal with the deforming effects of sin on our human souls. And yet, every generation of Christians, despite the opposition, despite the pressure, has always been sent by the Holy Spirit to go into those antichrist culture contexts and love the lost into the kingdom. What I'm trying to get you guys to realize is it does look dire for the church in the West. Stats that are just popping into my mind right now that I've read over the last year. Churches are hemorrhaging. Hemorrhaging. Denominations are going the way of the dinosaur, liberalizing and losing people left and right. And what we need to feel the weight of is that the opposition to Christianity is actually the priming of a pump for renewal and revival as we awaken to what God would have us to do as individuals in prayer. It truly is. January 5th, I want to teach a message just called a vision for renewal. And it starts with a group of 30 people saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And becoming so desperate that all we do is pray. And all we do is decide out of prayer, I'm going to live into this life of radical risk for the sake of the lost that surround me everywhere I go. There have been multitudes over the millennia now, there have been multitudes of strategies for penetrating society with the gospel and making disciples. There's been evangelism explosion. There's been the way of the master. There's been the four spiritual laws. There's been missional ecclesiology. I could give you books. There's been Henry Newbegin, who, or, um, uh, there have been all these multiple trainings. There's been all of these ways of reaching the lost. But when it all boils down, when everything distills down, you guys, for us, What's going to work, and the only thing that ultimately works, is relentless prayer and relationship. If we are truly going to make an impact in this stat, the only thing that truly, truly, truly works is a deep dependence on the Holy Spirit, a relentless prayer that God would move through us, not through me, not through the leaders of the church, but through us in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our classrooms. 
relentless prayer that is then founded upon real relationships with humans, real relationship, real friendships. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He prayed, and then he lived in relationship with the lost, and he called them to repentance, which actually was a call to them for hope. From our text this morning, we read that Jesus was accused of welcoming sinners and eating with them. Welcoming sinners and eating with them. And so our mission strategy is very simple. Pray, welcome sinners, and eat with them. This fundamental piece of Jesus's ministry and his missionary kind of work in the world was the practice of hospitality. He practiced hospitality as a bridge to build friendship with the lost. And that's why we're building this final pillar of Neighbors Church. The final pillar that we're building upon is hospitality. You'll notice a pattern in all of our teaching series. They usually start with some inward focus and inward transformation, emphases, stillness, simplicity, then to spirit, which launches us out into the outer world empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of saving the lost. Even our pillar series, word and faith, prayer, or Word and spirit, prayer and faith, excuse me. Those are inward works. Those are Christian works. Those are transformational works which create a family of Christians, but that family of Christians is to be growing, looking outward to hospitality as our means of creating friendships and bringing people into this family. So pray, welcome sinners, and eat with them. That's it. Now, I want to talk a little bit about what we mean by hospitality because it means more than just having dinner parties, okay? In our modern vocabulary, we think of hospitality as having some friends over for a game night, bottle of wine, some good food, or we might think of the hotel business possibly or the hospitality industry. Those ideas are, are, are part and parcel of the hospitality that we want to build neighbors on, but they're just, there's so much more. Hospitality in the ancient Near East... In, in where Jesus was, was a really big idea. Hospitality was a means of literal life or death. Hospitality was a means of literal life or death. So most of these people that Jesus interacted with, they lived in desert areas. And so if one was traveling and left to the elements without water or food and covering, they would literally die. They would be left out in the desert to die. And so it was a cultural given that any stranger in need would be brought in and provided life-sustaining water, food, and shelter. So with that big idea in mind, hospitality that we're talking about is fundamentally between a guest and a host who are initially strangers. But they become united in friendship because life-saving provision and protection is given to them. Now, of course, we don't face the same dangers that they faced back then, but the nature of hospitality in our context, it's still a matter of eternal life and eternal death for those that are around us. And so hospitality is making space for strangers so we can give to them the life-saving provision of Jesus himself. Hospitality intentionally connects us with humans that we would normally never interact with. Hospitality is specifically intentional about connecting ourselves with somebody that we would consider the stranger and get this, in the mind, in the biblical imagination, hospitality actually connects us with even possible enemies, people that we might consider dangerous. Luke tells us that the people that were coming to Jesus, they were the social outcasts of his day. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So the tax collectors, they were these politically despised, they, they were looked at as like social parasites, 
they had abandoned their country and betrayed their people. And then the sinner in the New Testament, Gospels in particular, sinner is like a junk drawer term that those authors use, and it includes a range of people. But anybody who didn't obey Torah, anybody who wasn't obeying Old Testament law was, was kind of entitled or they were titled as you are a, you are a sinner. Sinners were the ones in the Gospels who were doing life wrong in the eyes of the people that had power. Okay? So Jesus' hospitality made space for these outsiders. And the tax collectors had made some dumb decisions. Understand this. The tax collectors, whether by financial pressure or social pressure, had denied their people. They had made dumb decisions that made them outcasts. But Jesus befriended them and went after them, even though their own dumb decisions had wrecked their lives. Jesus brought in people that no one else would. The strangers, the immigrants, the addicted, the dangerous, the perverted, the misused, and the abused. He befriended the friendless. That's what Jesus did. Through hospitality and time together with these outsiders, these strangers, Jesus literally entered into their life experiences with them. This is what blows my mind. He identified with these social outcasts, and in essence, he became one with them. The relationship he built with them was so inclusive and so exhaustive that when he was watched from the outside, people thought he was actually one of them. He so identified with their pain and their lifestyle and who they were that in one place, Jesus was actually accused of being a drunk and a glutton. The old King James says, a wine-bibber and a glutton. He was hanging out with that crew that drank too much. Jesus would have been at the frat party where that kid died on this campus. He would have been there. He would have been in trouble with all those kids over this past couple weeks. Would have he been drunk? Absolutely not. But he was so identified with that community of people that he would have been accused and in trouble with those people for what? their dumb decisions had resulted in. Beyond this hospitality in Jesus' time and this idea of eating food with somebody, it was more than just having a meal. In the ancient mind frame, to sit down and eat a meal with somebody was to say, I am one with you. And so as you broke bread with somebody and then they broke bread from the same loaf, which we will do later here in our time together, You were literally saying, as I eat this bread and then you eat from the same loaf, that makes us one. We are one together. And so these types of friendships that Jesus entered into were extremely provocative. They were so countercultural and so counterintuitive and so not the way that most normal people were living their life in the day of Jesus, that it provoked people to think. So the people that he was befriending, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the outsiders, the, the, the marginalized. When he befriended them, he provoked them to begin to think, wait, maybe I am valued. His friendship with them was provocative. He provoked them to think, wait, maybe I am worthy of relationship. He provoked them to think, wait, could God care for me and love me even though I've made these decisions, even though I'm alone? His, his friendships also is what got him crucified. The, the outsiders who said, I live in my society, I live in my place, I keep my, my crowd high and tight, so to speak. 
when they watched Jesus, they were provoked to accusation, but they were also provoked to begin to question, wait, do I know Yahweh? Do I know the God of the Old Testament? Because this man claims to be representative. This man claims to be Yahweh himself, which really upset them. This man claims to be God in the flesh, and he's hanging out with those that we would consider God would never hang out with. His friendships were provoking internally, and his friendships were provoking externally. And it was lavish hospitality, this lavish hospitality that created these provocative friendships that transformed people. And so ultimately, you guys, hospitality needs to start in our hearts. I'm going to kick back here just a little bit and get comfortable so we can finish this up. Hospitality needs to start in your heart today. This is weird. I'm kind of digging it being small like this. It feels so much more like we could actually get something done. Where are our hearts? I'll tell you where mine is. Given our current state of affairs and polarized politics and angry Twitter rants and school shootings and global terrorism, there is a lot of fear about the other, the stranger, the one that doesn't look like us, the one that maybe could be different from us. And so societally and especially within the church, we assume first that there is danger in the stranger that we see. And it's made us closed off and guarded. In the, in the climate that we live in right now, we are first closed off. We are first looking at somebody with skepticism and squinted eye, wondering, where's the danger in this situation? And Jesus of Nazareth, he literally charged us to fight that tendency. If we are his apprentices, he literally commanded us to pray for those who could hurt us and maybe even would hurt us. He, he commanded us to provide for those who rob us. So if we bring the crackhead into our home and they end up lifting all of our silverware, we've done the bidding of Jesus. He literally commanded us to love our enemy. It's the most difficult teachings of all of Jesus, to love our enemy, to love the stranger, to love the possible danger. And that is the radical heart of hospitality. Hospitality brings in the outsider for the sake of giving to them life-saving provision that transforms them from stranger to friend, enemy to family. Henry Nouwen said this, our, hosti- our hostilities are converted into hospitality. Our vocation is to convert the enemy into a guest and to create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. And so hospitality is first experienced and hospitality is first exemplified in our hearts as our hearts are open and welcoming to all at all times in all places. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean that your front door needs to be constantly open and every homeless guy you see you're bringing in. Um, I tried doing that when my wife and I first got married. I would always bring homeless dudes in off the street to sleep in our apartment. And one night she was out of town. I brought some homeless dude in. And she calls, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I got this guy off the street. He's sleeping in the guest bedroom. She's like, oh my gosh, what if he strangles you? <laughs> but even there, remembering that, hospitality is that heart that's always open. And so... If our hearts are always open, it means that we have a posture of heart at work, a posture of heart in our neighborhood, and a posture of heart in our classroom that is not first closed off, it's first open. 
So that coworker whose political leanings just we just are frustrated by. We cannot understand. That person is who we're open to. In our classrooms, it's the student who seems to always be unseen. It's, it's the neighbor wearing a hijab with a head covering. Hospitality has a heart that is open and welcoming to everyone that comes into our lives in any given moment. And once our hearts are actually hospitable, then our homes open up and we do begin to just eat food with sinners. Food is the great equalizer amongst all humans. Food naturally unites us through shared bonds of texture, color, smell, and flavor. Food around a table is the common language of all cultures. Every culture knows what it is to sit down around a table, tell stories, laugh, eat food, and talk about it together. And there is something so, um, it, there's something so deconstructing of the awkwardness whenever you just get people around a table who are total strangers and put food in their faces and say, tell me about where you grew up. And all of a sudden, these bridges are built. And so, like Jesus, if we're to be called friend of sinners, wouldn't that be a moniker of nobility and honor for Neighbors Church? If a year from now people said, that church, they're like friends with sinners. Man, we'd be doing it. Honestly, we'd finally be doing what I've been praying for for 20 years. To do it, though, we have to lay down our lives by radically risking, and we have to walk into the awkward of invitation, and we have to be able to risk getting to know people that are so unlike us. And it's, it takes time. It takes intentionality. This is our mission strategy. We're going to wrap this up. Pray, and through hospitality, build genuine friendships with people who become our family. Super simple. We're going to pray earnestly, and through lavish hospitality, we want to build these provocative friendships with possible enemies that become our family. So where do we start? From our text that I read this morning, just four quick places to start. Number one, each of us, as we leave our time together this morning, we have to realize that someone is missing from this room. Right now, there are people that are missing from this room. Suppose one of you, Jesus tells this parable, has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. To reach the lost, we actually have to feel the weight of and realize that people around us are lost. They're lost. If this shepherd in this parable that we read never took note of one of the sheep being gone, he would have gone about his life as usual. But the moment that he realized one of his valuable flock was missing, it changed his focus. It changed the way that he thought about where he was going to expend his energy. The recognition of the lost sheep actually reoriented where this man's awareness was, and it moved him into actual action. That stat from the crew at Gordon-Conwell is reminding us that there are millions of people missing from the flock of Jesus. There, there are people in this room that God wants in this room that aren't here. And they're wandering across this campus. They're wandering in our neighborhoods. In my neighborhood, they're drinking and drugging themselves silly on both sides, trying to find some semblance of meaning and peace. We have to realize that they're lost. And once we do, it changes and orients our focus and our activity. It causes us, number two, we have to leave the 99. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country? So this shepherd in this parable, he had to leave the 99 and go venture out. He literally had to be intentional. 
He could not just sit comfortably with the 99, doing as he'd always done, and hope that the lost sheep would come wandering back into the fold. What that means for us is seeking the lost and practicing hospitality is always costly. It will cost us money. It will cost us food. It will cost us time. This is the big thing for my wife and I as we pray about this. With a crazy calendar, three teenage kids, a church plant, where is the margin for this? And it literally has to be a reprioritization of our calendars to think through how could we at a bare minimum once a month be hospitable to our neighbors? How could we build these relationships? It requires all these sacrifices. And I'm, I'm telling you guys, I hope we all realize this, but the days where non-believers are just going to come wandering into a Sunday gathering are far and few between. It's happened twice here at Neighbors. <laughs> it, it's it's Max will go out and he'll be singing and people will be like, what are you doing? And Max will be like, come to church with me. And people that have never been to church will, will show up. But Max is one of those uniquely anointed evangelists. We have to be intentional. We have to go out and we have to find them. Number three, we have to look for them everywhere all the time. And I think this is really a key. It's a way of viewing the world. Each of us in this room this morning and anybody that calls neighbors home and anybody that calls the Church of Jesus Christ their home, each of us respectively have our own shepherd's calling into our various spheres of influence. You need to know this. This should empower you. You are not at that job or in that neighborhood by chance. He who cast a trillion suns into the universe and knows every star by name didn't put you where you are by accident to stumble and bumble along through life. He's intentional. Despite the apparent chaos of creation, our king is very precise. Very precise. And you are the pastor of the people around you this week. You are the life raft sent to the drowning humans on a sinking ship. And so where we go this week, when I go get coffee from Miriam and Kat, I recognize I am their pastor leading them to still waters. And they've never been to church in their life. When I'm going to my meetings and I'm tipping the waiter, I'm literally praying for the waiter. Where you are in your workplace, in the cubicle next to you, where you are in your classroom, you have been specifically sent there as a shepherd to lead the sheep back to Jesus. And so you're always looking. And no, don't get weird about this. Don't be looking for an opportunity to drop the little Jesus bombs Be in relationship with the humans that God has sent you into the midst of. People people know when they are being used as a program. Or people know, people sniff out when they're being looked at as a project immediately. But people also immediately know, holy, this person genuinely wants to be with me. And it's dismantling to all the defenses. Number four, finally, As we go out, we leave the 99, we look for them everywhere. When they start to come in, don't just let it be you. Bring them in and rejoice together as a hospitable family. Notice the end of the parable. He finds them, he joyfully puts them on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Just a light story here because this is such a heavy this can be a heavy burden. But I'm telling you, I am notorious for losing my wallet. 
like nonstop. My kids, my wife, they know about two or three times a day. I'm going to be like, where's the keys? Where's my wallet? <laughs> and I'm always desperate to find my wallet because I'm usually about 15 minutes late for a meeting. So right then is when I realize I can't find my keys or my wallet. And I will look for it everywhere I can. And then, of course, I will find it. And when I find it, I'm in the car and I've looked under the chair and I found it underneath the chair and I'll raise it up to the heavens. I found my wallet. Praise God. And I don't want to just celebrate it alone. I have to go in and tell my children and my wife and all my neighbors, look, that which was lost has been found. Rejoice with me. I want to share in the finding. I mean, honestly, that was a stupid story. (laughs) The joy that explodes in eternity when one human being says, I'm turning from my old life to Jesus, if we could just hear that reverberate in our souls. It's just, that's what motivates us. And bringing people into a family that comes around them. There's just, I love when we get ready to start doing baptisms and people come out of the waters of baptism and there's that explosive just celebration and shouting. That is the heartbeat of what we're doing. That, that's the end of the game. That's the, that's the game-winning touchdown, field goal, match, score, whatever analogy you want. That moment of explosive joy is what we're living for. That's what we're going for. And then finally, never forget, never forget that you were found. Hospitality is the very heartbeat of the gospel. Jesus' friend John said this, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. What John is saying is that Jesus endured the ultimate experience of being the stranger. Jesus, as a human, endured the greatest pain of being the outsider who was rejected. And humanity, all of us, we were inhospitable to him in the highest degree. And so rather than taking him in, we cast him aside. And the cross where Jesus died was the height of humanity's inhospitality to our God. The good news, though, is that this outcast one, this rejected one, he endured the shame of that, the marginalization of that, the pain of the cross. He endured that so he could go into a grave and absorb all of our inhospitality, all of our fear, all of our... mm, interpretations of other people that divides it. He embraced and he absorbed all of that so he could go into a grave, bury it in death, and then rise up and become the ultimate host. Jesus, throughout his ministry, was highlighting, he was exemplifying that God, our God, he is the divine host. And God takes in all of the rejected humanity And he wants to lavish them with his provision and his love. So Jesus, throughout his ministry, he provided miraculous healings. He set dinner tables for 5,000 through five loaves and two fish. He was the great dinner host who said, your God is the great dinner host who will always provide exactly what you need. And he multiplied the fish and the loaves. He was the great dinner host who at certain points just spoke truth in love. Building these provocative friendships, he would say to certain humans and call them out where they were and give to them the gift of repentance and hope. And it was all as an act of hospitality to befriend his enemies, you and I, 
Jesus' hospitality was the divine host bringing in his enemies to make us his family. And so the night before he was crucified, he had this dinner party of sorts and traditionally called the Last Supper. And he said he was giving his body and his blood as the provision for our sin. He was going to take into himself our inhospitality so that we could go into his home and feast on his love. And then finally, as we come to the communion table this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to break up, but I want you to think about this. At the end of days, when Jesus reigns in full across all of earth, when heaven comes to earth, it's going to be a massive act of hospitality. It's this gigantic feast where all the strangers and all the outcasts and all the marginalized of every place, of every corner from all of the earth will be gathered into this perfectly hospitable creation, this abundant creation, to be with each other and to be with their God and to feast together on his goodness. Heaven is an eternal act of hospitality. That's what we're looking forward to. So every time we open up our homes and we're eating dinner with a group of strangers who are becoming our family, heaven on earth is breaking in.